Welcome to the Radiant Church Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Grab a Bible or open up your favorite Bible app as we get into God's Word together. Hey, good morning. Thank you for continuing on with us past worshiping the Lord through song. And now we get to worship the Lord through the hearing and obeying of God's word. So we are going to continue our series through the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to be in chapter six. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and open up to Nehemiah chapter six. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter today as we work our way through it. This morning, if you needed a title, the thrust of our conversation today is going to be on being focused and faithful being focused and faithful. Let me ask you a question by way of introduction. What's the most important thing that you have to do right now in the season of life? That's a hard question. That's not even a fair question because we have so many things to do and all of them seem important because most of them feel urgent. But this morning, I believe the word of God is going to remind us on what's most important so that we can focus there and be faithful There. Look at verses one through four of Nehemiah six. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at the time I had not installed the doors in the city gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the the villages of the Ono Valley. They were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me this same proposal and I gave them the same reply. Would you pray with me? Father, God, in this moment, we need to hear from you the words of a mere man won't do. So I pray that the words would leap from the page and into the depths of a heart bearing a fruit and a harvest of righteousness. God, we need to be challenged and comforted and convicted and changed by your word. Would you do that this morning? All of you and none of me, God, so that your church will be strengthened and edified and focused for the task ahead. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. All of God's people said, amen and amen. In today's passage in Nehemiah chapter 6, we're going to see Nehemiah being tested in three different ways by his enemies. His enemies are going to use deception, distraction, and the threat of destruction to get Nehemiah to stop the work of God. And every time Nehemiah is going to respond to these lies, these rumors, and these threats with a holy boldness and confidence, with greater focus and faithfulness, even shugging off threats to his life. But today is not just about Nehemiah's confidence, it's about us. The word of God isn't about us, but it's written to us. And I believe that this passage, almost more than any other in the book of Nehemiah, is a timely word for us today. What should the church be focused on today? How we measure the church being faithful today. That's what the call and the charge is for us. So before we dive into Nehemiah, we need to do a little bit of homework because Nehemiah's calling was a little bit clearer. He was called to build a wall. But when we say, what is the calling of the church? What are we here to do? That can be a little murky for some. So before we dive into the passage, indulge me with a few minutes of just laying some groundwork. So what is the church called to do? What is the church called to be? Answer that for yourself. 
If you had to answer that question, what is the church called to be and called to do? You would probably hear lots of different answers, and there's lots of passages about it, but I want to zoom in on one in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2 starts off by talking about how we should reject the things of this world and mature in Christ. And verse 9, it climaxes to painting this portrait of what God's people gathered should look like. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you had to pick just one scripture that would sum up what the church is called to be and what the church is called to do, you could do not too bad with 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Hear those words again, a chosen people. We were chosen, which means we didn't earn our way here. We are saved by grace through faith through Jesus Christ. We are a royal priesthood. We are adopted into the king's family, yet we still worship him and serve him. We are holy. People who are set apart, people who reject the idols and temptations of this world, living holy for God. And we are a people for his own possession. We don't get to live life our way for ourselves. We live for God and with God's people. Why? So that we may proclaim Jesus who called us out of darkness. That's not a bad mission statement, is it? That's not a bad laying down the foundation for what the church is called to do. And so for us today, let's rally around that foundation is that ultimately we are called to be a Chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession so that we might proclaim Jesus. That is what we are called to do. You don't just find this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He didn't just make this up. This is the testimony of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, verse 10 through 15, Exodus 19, 6, Isaiah 61, 6. This is over and over in the Old Testament that God's people would be holy. God's people would be priests. God's people would be his own people for his own possession. This was God's plan all along. This is what we were called to do. If you are personally searching for what God has called you to do, what your purpose is, what your career is, what you are here on this planet to do, start here. Because although there is a specific calling that every Christian has on their life, I believe that from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it doesn't negate or contradict the general calling that all believers are called to, to be holy, to be God's people, to serve and worship him and to proclaim Jesus. At Radiant Church, we sum this up by saying that we are God's family on mission. We are his people called out of our sin to himself, and we are brothers and sisters' family, and we commit ourselves to his mission. And this mission is to proclaim Jesus. But in times like these today, it's hard to know how to live that out, isn't it? It's hard to know how we should apply these truths. I want to proclaim Jesus, but how do I do that on a phone call with a relative? How do I do that in conversation with a coworker? How do I do that when our country seems to be forcing us to choose a side? How do we live this out? Well, the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and Nehemiah 6 is going to shed some light on that answer about how we are called to live through the distractions, through the deceptions, and even through the threats of destruction. Look again at verses 1 and 2. 
when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall. Pause there for just a moment. Who are these random people? We've seen them pop up before. Sanballat, Geshem, Tobiah. Sanballat, Geshem, Tobiah. We've seen these names pop up before, but who are they? Quick history lesson here. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria to the north. Geshem was the king of Kavar to the south. And Tobiah was a wealthy and connected Jew living among Nehemiah's own people. So his enemies were a powerful ruler in the north, a powerful ruler in the south, and even someone among his own people who were against him. But what brings this motley trio together? Well, Sanballat and Geshem, the kings to the north and to the south, they were in it for the power. They were in it for the money. Up to this point, Judah had no walls. Jerusalem had no walls. It had no independence. It had very little autonomy. And so for them, if Nehemiah was rebuilding Jerusalem, reestablishing it as an independent and separate city, it's going to mess with their trade. It's going to mess with their power. And very few things will motivate somebody like messing with their money. And so Sanballat and Geshem said, no, we can't have this. But Tobiah is a little different. For Tobiah, it was personal. He was against Nehemiah for personal reasons. He was a Jew. He was among the royalty. His name literally means Yahweh is good. He was a man of stature and prominence, but there's only one problem. When he came back with the exiles in the book of, Nehemiah, in the book of Ezra right before Nehemiah, they did a census check. They said all these people are flooding back into Jerusalem. They said, hey, let's make sure that we're actually Jewish citizens. Let's make sure that we're actually descendants of Abraham. And so they checked the records and Tobiah's name was not found. Ezra chapter 2 verse 60 says that Tobiah's lineage was cut off from being a covenant partner with the community of Israel. And so all of his power, all of his influence could not make him that which he wasn't, couldn't prove that which he wasn't. So for him, it was personal. They got a saying where, I'm, where I come from that all skin folk ain't kin folk. Amen? Just because they with you don't mean they with you. And Tobiah was living in the city among, but he was working against the work. And so these are highly motivated and powerful enemies, and yet Nehemiah would not be deceived. And so look again at the request in verse 2. Sambalot and Geshem sent me a message, Come. Let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. They were planning to harm me. They were trying to deceive Nehemiah. They said, hey, man, I heard great things about you and this wall. Why don't we meet at this dark alley all by ourselves? Oh, by the way, come by yourself. They were planning to harm him. They figured if we can take Nehemiah out, the work will stop. Our interests will be protected. We're going to see a parallel between Nehemiah's enemies and our great enemy, Satan. And although Nehemiah's enemies use deception, that is not an uncommon tactic for the devil, is it? One of the first tactics he used against Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 was asking the question by making the statement, did God say? Did God really say that you can't eat this fruit? Did he really say that the enemy has been planting lies and deception from the beginning? The Bible calls him the father of lies. And so Nehemiah's enemies use deception, and so will our enemy use deception. Whispering in the garden, did God really say? Whispering to us today, who do you think you are? Telling us the lies about ourselves so that we don't believe what God has said about us. But how did Nehemiah respond? 
Verse 3 and 4. He sent messengers saying, I'm doing important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. Do y'all get how bold this is? The commander and kings of armies said, hey, come, let's meet. And he's like, nah, I'm busy. Just flat out, nah, I'm busy. Why should I stop doing the work which God has called me to do? Because I see through the deception. Now, what do you think happened next? Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, they said, oh, man, we tried, it didn't work, let's go home. Is that what happened in your life? (laughs) Is that how the enemy works in here on our own lives? No. If deception doesn't work, maybe distraction will work. And that's the next tactic we see in verses 5 through 7. It says, Sambalot sent me the same message a fifth time by his aide who had an open letter in his hand, an open letter so that all could see. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem agrees, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you are building the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king and have even set up prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on their behalf, there is a king in Judah. Now, these rumors will be heard by the king, so come, let's confer together. Don't get lost in the nuance here. We know what this is. This is that thinly veiled threat that doesn't sound like a threat. You ever ask your parents to go outside or go do something? And they've already told you no, but you keep asking. And so now how do they respond after that? You can go outside if you want to. I didn't, I didn't say I was going to choke you out. I didn't say I was going to throw something at you. I just said you can do whatever you want to do. But just know that there's consequences. In the mobster movies, they would, when things weren't going their way, they would say things like, oh, it'd be terrible if something happened to you on the way to work, huh? Not saying that I would do that, but I'm just saying it would be bad if it happened. And that's what Sam Bilhad is doing. He's using a thinly veiled threat to say, hey, man, I just heard some rumors. I'm not saying I started these rumors. I'm not saying I'm the one saying it. I just heard. They're calling you a traitor to the king. As a matter of fact, this is the exact same tactic Sam Bilhad used in Ezra chapter 4 to stop the work the first time, was invoking the name of the king. And so Sambalot comes off as a friend saying, hey, Nehemiah, I just heard some rumors about you. It would be in your best interest for us to get together so that we can put these rumors down. Distraction through rumor. Distracting him from the work trying to protect his reputation. And that's a normal response, isn't it? When we hear things about us, said about us that are not true, it is a normal response to try to protect our own credibility, try to protect our own reputation. But Nehemiah knew that he could either protect his name or continue the work. So his reply in verse 8, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. They are trying to intimidate us, saying they will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. But now, my God, strengthen my hands. Not only does he deny and discredit these rumors, he prays again for an extra dose of strength, saying, God, they are working harder to attack me, so I must work harder to do that, what you have called me to do. We going somewhere, y'all still with me? They tried to deceive him, that didn't work. They tried to distract him, that didn't work. What do you think they're going to do next? They're going to try to destroy him. If deception doesn't work, if distraction doesn't work, maybe absolute destruction will finally take him out the game. Verses 10, 11, and 12. I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Methabel, who was restricted to his house. 
He said, let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they are coming to kill you. They're coming to what? Kill you. They're coming to kill you even tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? How can someone like me enter the temple and live? I will not go. Pause there for just a moment. Another friend of Nehemiah, another Jew, perhaps even a a, a servant in the temple, a priest or a Levite, came to Nehemiah and said, hey, man, they're coming to kill you, and they're coming to kill you tonight. Save your life by hiding in the temple. Why did Shemaiah want Nehemiah to hide in the temple? Why not just get him out of the city? What's so important there? Verse 12 answers the question, I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he spoke against me. Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He was hired so that I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. They didn't want to just take his life. They wanted to destroy his credibility. Why? Because to go into the temple and to not be a priest would be sinning against God. Not only would they take his life, but they would take his reputation by saying he was never one of us at all. Look at how he disobeyed the laws of God and went into the temple to save his own life. They wanted to thoroughly destroy him. But even facing death, Nehemiah chooses not to sin against his God or to stop the work that God had called him to do. He realized that God can't be with them. And so do what you're going to do. I'm going to finish the work. Do what you're going to do. I'm going to finish the work. And the one time Nehemiah goes on the offense, up to this point, he's been playing defense. They've been coming at him. He's been defending. They've been coming at him. He's been defending. But this one time he goes on the offense, and what does he do? Verse 14, my God, remember Tobiah and Sambalot for for what they have done, and also the prophetess Noada and all the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. The one time Nehemiah goes on offense, he prays for his enemies. He entrusts retribution to God. He entrusts vengeance to the Lord. He entrusts payback to the Lord. He says, God, I leave them in your hands. You have already given me enough to do in mine. It's a cool story, right? Nehemiah is a brave guy, faced hard opposition. What does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with the church today? That's where I want to end our time today. We began by talking about what the church is called to be, what you and I are called to do. You see, for Nehemiah, it was to rebuild a wall. For us, we are called to be God's family on mission. That's our wall. That's our task. And we have to remain faithful and focused, just like Nehemiah is faithful and focused, because just like Nehemiah, we will face deceptions, distractions, and even threats of destruction to try to get us off that which God has called us to do. Let's unpack it. Deception in the church, is there any? Is there any lies swirling around in our culture that would distract Christians from what's most important? I've spent far too much time of my life over the last couple months talking about conspiracy theories. QAnon and other things that are made up consuming time and energy that Christians are buying into, that Christians are being swept away with. This progressive sense of Christianity, too, that takes God out of the center and puts man and his comfort and his pleasure and his questions at the center. 
all these lies trying to distract the people of God from doing the work of God. Those are just the deceptions. What about the distractions? Keep in mind what the definition of a distraction is. A distraction is anything that prevents you from giving full attention to something else. A distraction is anything that prevents you from giving full attention to something else. And I think one of this, in this season right now, one of the biggest distractions the church face from the work of God is the distraction of talking about the work of God. Stay with me for just a second. This political season has us tweeting and texting and blogging and podcasting all about what a Christian should do, what the church should be doing. Even in our personal lives, we spend so much time trying to convince others and defend ourselves that we don't have enough time to actually do the thing that God calls us to do. Micah 6, 8, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God does not say convince others to do Justice. Convince others and defend yourselves for your love of mercy. It doesn't say to convince others or defend yourselves. It says do the work. And sometimes we can get pulled into conversations about why we're doing this and why we're not doing that, that we are distracted from the actual work. Even my own life, I have a a wide range of friends and brothers, even pastors, When I hear some of my conservative pastors say that social justice is ungodly and unbiblical, I just respond like Nehemiah, cool story, bro, and get back to work. I'm not going to get into a Twitter texting battle with you. Why? Because when we're talking about whether systemic racism is real or not, while we're doing that, it's really killing people who bear the image of God. So continue the discussion, continue the conversation. I'm going to get back on the wall. And for some of my progressive Christian brothers, they say, why are you talking about Jesus as the only way to salvation? Why are you taking the Bible as the literal word of God? Isn't he just a good man? Isn't the Bible just a helpful book? I don't get in debates with them either. Cool story, bro. Jesus is not just a man. He is the God man and the only way to salvation and the only source of truth, hope, justice, love, and mercy. And the Bible isn't some book. It's the inspired, infallible, and errant word of God preserved through famine, flood, and persecution to tell the story of redemption, to instruct God's people, and to reveal the person of Jesus. So, fam, we should say focus. We don't have time to engage in every side conversation. We don't have time to engage in every question. We have work to do. I'm not talking about a hard-hearted arrogance here. That's not what I'm saying. We should be soft-hearted towards critique. We should be willing to change our position on most things with new information. I'm not saying ignore the worlds. I'm saying be focused and be faithful. Deceptions, distractions. What about the threat of destruction? Nehemiah's very life was put on the line in order for him to do the work. Are we in the same position? Fear is a reoccurring theme in chapter 6. In verses 9, 14, and 19, the CSB Bible translate that word to intimidate, but it literally means to frighten. Over and over and over, Nehemiah's enemies were meant to instill fear in him. Why? Because fear will make you lose focus. 
Fear will make you, when you will otherwise be faithful, to lose faith. And it's one political commercial after another selling fear, isn't it? Fear of what this country is, fear of what this country could become, fear of what's going to happen to the church, fear of what's going to happen to our religious liberties, fear of what's going to happen to our political power, the fear of destruction. They are selling fear, and Christians, by and large, are buying it. We bought into the lie that if we don't do this, everything is lost. If we don't do that, everything is lost. And the reality is whether these fears are real or imagined is not what matters most. What matters most is how we respond to fear, how we respond to the threat of destruction. And this is a hard one, y'all, because the threats we are faced up against are many and they feel overwhelmingly true. It feels like everything is at stake right now. How did Nehemiah stay focused and faithful even when everything was on the line? Because I believe that can help us know how we are to stay focused and faithful. I believe the key for Nehemiah was in verse 12. The thing that unlocked it all for him is found in verse 12. He says, I realized that God had not sent him. Remember the prophecy that came that said, hey, Nehemiah, your life is at stake. Come and hide in the temple. He says, I realized that God had not sent this man because the prophecy he spoke against me. You see, he realized that God was not with that man because he had seen God show up already in his life. And God can't be telling me to pull back now when he's already shown clearly that we're to march forward. Where do we see that? And in Nehemiah chapter 1, God remembered God's promises. Nehemiah remembered God's promises. In Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah saw God's provision. In Nehemiah chapter 3, Nehemiah saw the work of God's people. In Nehemiah chapter 4, he saw... the. God's protection, even when he was under attack over and over and over again, he had realized that God is with me. God is for me. Romans 8, 28 says this. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. A great verse to to memorize and store in our hearts. And many of us have pulled upon this truth in times of despair, uncertainty, and loss. But if we keep reading, it actually gets better. And I believe this could be the foundation for us to be reminded that if God is for us, what do we have to be afraid of? Verse 20 again says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God or called according to his purposes. Keep reading. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or COVID as it is written? Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted to sheep as to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Somebody should go running through a wall right now. What are we afraid of, church? Jesus, who is in us and is for us, has conquered death itself. What do we have to lose? What can the world take from us that isn't already secure in Jesus? It's not that the things that we face in this life don't matter, y'all. The suffering is real. The loss is real. The tears are real. It's not that it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter most. There is an eternal, secured, unshakable victory that we already have in Jesus Christ if we would just live according to his purposes. I'm not saying God will protect your dreams for your life. I'm saying God will protect you as you live out God's dreams through your life. You submit to him, live his purposes, do his work. You get his power. You get his protection. You get his provision. You get him. That's why Christians should be walking around feeling nine foot tall and bulletproof, y'all. That's why we shouldn't be worried about what's what's it going to cost us. We shouldn't be worried about compromising to maintain power. We shouldn't be worried about compromising to bear our witness. We should be people who are faithful to the end because the end is good. The end is so good. And no matter how we may meet it, it will be him on the other end. So even under the threat of destruction, church, don't compromise. Don't quit. They can make Christianity illegal tomorrow. Don't compromise. Don't quit. They could take whatever you have from you. Don't compromise. Don't quit. Stay faithful. Stay focused. Not that it won't cost you something. It might cost you everything. I don't know. But God is on the wall. Stay with him. Stay with him. What's the promise on the other end? The charge is clear to stay faithful and focused, to be God's family on mission, to love God, to love others, and tell everybody about Jesus. That's the job. That's the mission. What's the promise? Verse 15 and 16. The wall was completed in 52 days on the 25th day of the month of Elul. When all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. Do you hear that? It says when all our enemies, when all the nations, every, it was just a few coming against them, but it was everyone who saw what God did. It was just a few coming to stop the work, but it was all who worshiped God because of the work. The New Testament puts it this way in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. If we stay faithful and focused in this time and at all times, God will do something, y'all. God will show how good he is to the nations, to the world, to our neighborhoods, to our coworkers, to the city. We don't have to worry about winning them. We just got to be worried about staying faithful and God will do the work. We don't have to worry about whether it's legal or not. God will do the work. We don't have to worry about whether we have protections or not. God will do the work. Church, don't fall for the deception. Deception. 
Don't give room to the distractions and don't give in to the threats of destruction. We are called to be God's family on mission. Love God, love others, and it will cost you everything. It'll cost us a little bit of money, a little bit of comfort. But at the end, we will be found faithful. And there we will find our reward. Let me pray. Father, easy words to say, God, hard to live out. God, even in my own life, easy words to say to be faithful and to stay focused to ignore the deceptions and distractions, to don't give in to the threats of destruction, but God, they feel real. And sometimes, God, we forget that you are more real than those. That the fear that the world is trying to sell us, the bad choices the world is trying to get us to make, God, help us to reject it all and to stay focused and to be faithful to the mission. God, help Radiant Church to be faithful to the mission, no matter what the cost, no matter what it may look like, because you are there and we want you above all things. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining our family in North Charleston as we heard God's word preached today. We would love to connect with you. You can find us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Send us a message to learn more about what Radiant Church is doing or support the vision of Radiant Church at radiantcharleston.com.